Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 203 with my guest, Oliver Sykes. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. Honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. I'm not a therapist. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Mentalpod is also the uh, Twitter handle you can follow me at. Uh, go check out the website, the MetalPod website. Um, if there's a specific topic you're interested in, you can uh, type it in the search box and uh, articles or episodes will come up that uh, are related to that. Um, and that search box is, box is not to be confused with the uh, Amazon search box that we have on our site as well uh, because we're an, an, uh, an Amazon affiliate. Um should also tell you about that because it's the Christmas season. If you're going to buy something at Amazon, enter through our search portal, and um, then Amazon gives us a couple nickels when you buy something, and it doesn't cost you anything. But anyway, our website, we have blogs uh, by me, by guests. Uh, there's a forum you can join. There's uh, surveys you can take. There are You can see how other people filled out surveys, revealing their deepest, darkest shames and secrets and struggles and uh, all kinds of stuff um and you can support the show financially by going there as uh, as well um wanted to share a really um and i'm not doing any surveys on uh, on today's show i'm going to read a couple of emails uh after the interview with with oliver um but yeah, wasn't just didn't feel like um, doing the doing the surveys um, today. Um, I had a really, really uh, I, I don't even know what the word would be to describe it, but um, last weekend I was invited to speak 
at uh, Johns Hopkins uh, University um, about sexual assault. And it, it's uh, the group that I spoke to is a resource for um, for victims. And when they invited me to come speak, um, my first thought was, holy fuck, John Hopkins, they must have the wrong email address. Um, apparently, one of the women on their board is, uh, she's a listener to the show. Hello, Christine. And um, so my first instinct was I was super excited to go, but I felt like a fraud. And so we had a preliminary phone call with them when we were talking about what I would talk about. And and I got honest with them and I said, you know, I feel like a hypocrite because so many years of my life, I was a misogynist. I was an objectifier. And, uh, you know, I even had a woman say to me one time years ago, um, after we had had sex the next day, she said, I've, I felt violated by you. And until we did the episode with Gina Grad on this podcast, I had never realized how many women and men often have sex when they really don't want to because they're afraid of hurting the other person's feelings and they give in to that person's persistence. And when Gina said that, um, I suddenly realized, oh my God, I'm that guy. And I began to look back at the relationships that I'd had and the sexual encounters I'd had. And I realized that some of those might have been abusive. You know, clearly the one where the woman said that she had felt violated. And I, you know, immediately had apologized to her and did some real soul searching, but it didn't get rid of that shame and the, and the sadness that I feel that I'm, you know, probably negatively affected somebody's life. So I shared this with the, the people at the resource group and they, um, and they said, no, I, I think that's important and, and it would be good for you to share that as a part of your talk. And I almost wanted to cry because I felt like if there's any group of people who should reject me, it should be them. And they were the ones that were paying me to come speak. And the other thing that, that where I thought maybe there is value in me coming to speak is the fact that I have survived incest and if I look at the guy that I became and how I treated women, I was in many ways repeating what had been done to me by my mom. She objectified me. She pushed my, you know, sexual boundaries, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I guess that certainly doesn't excuse what I did, but it, it, um, it allowed me to talk about the subject in a larger context, which I think is what is lacking. You know, too often we just will look at somebody being hurt and we don't think about why is that other person hurting them? What is driving them to do that? 
Is it a lack of conscience? Is it they don't understand? You know, it had never occurred to me that I could be experiencing something during sex that was completely different than uh, the woman was experiencing. And that was kind of, um, it was life altering for me to, for that to dawn on me. You know, I certainly knew that somebody could, you know, think that the sex was great and the other person thought it was mediocre, but I never realized Um, And this is especially true of people who were raised in households where their needs were placed behind their parents was they don't want to upset somebody. They don't want to appear selfish. They, They don't know the words to advocate for their needs. And so they silently go along with something while their soul is crying out, I don't want this to be happening. So I went and I, and I spoke and, uh, a group of, um, the, the, people who were putting the event on and, and I had lunch and um, and it was one of the most it was it was about a two-hour lunch and it was probably the most powerful two hours of my life um, even though they were younger than me and they were female I felt like and I had been this guy Being honest, there's so many things I want to say. I told a little bit of my story um, with them. I shared some stuff. They shared some stuff. And, And at one point, I just looked at them and I said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And they said, thank you for saying that. And I was... I was I was convinced up until the minute I went to speak that they were going to text me and say don't bother coming. That's how deep my my belief has been all my life that I am um gross and after I spoke some women came up to me and told me how moved they were. Um, one of them had tears in her eyes and she was just beginning to confront, you know, what had happened to her. And they were bonding with me as a fellow survivor. And I think it was so profound to me because I'm no longer a misogynist. And and I felt protective of these these women um, and one of them in particular she just had tears in her eyes and she started to tell me her story and 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 I'd got to just hold her hand and look in her eyes and listen to her while the tears rolled down her face and I thought she trusts me she fucking trusts me and When I flew back home, something inside of me had started to heal. Some of that shame. Um, it's it, it's hard to put this into words, but I wanted to talk about this because it's a really seminal moment in in my life, and 
A, I, you know, I sent them an email and thanked them and told them how cleansing it was for me to be able to do this because I want to do more of it. It, it. I feel like it's my life's purpose and my life's passion and I feel like I have a story to tell and I feel like I I tell it well. But there's also a little part in my brain that still feels like a hypocrite, that still feels like they're going to text you and tell you not to show up. Oh God, I wish I didn't need to take meds. Flat out fucking auditory hallucinations. I would literally wake up running from my bed. I'm afraid that I'll pass my anger on to my son. I thought the gunman was my father. Afraid of not being able to make a living. Um, that's probably going to break his heart if he hears it, but that's that's the truth. They committed him to Bellevue. There was this fear that if I feel this pain, I wish someone could see what was going on and just help me, that it will kill me and I will die and I will drown. You can't think your way out of a thinking problem. And I cried the way that a baby cries. Cried like an animal. It makes me so mad at myself that I do that. The burden of perfectionism. And that's when I got to therapy. Let's talk about that. I was like, fuck it, I'm alive. I don't give a shit about anything. You are a shining example of what is best about human beings. I'm worried that the uh, Russian militia is coming over the hill. I know that, uh, but uh, Alice, how you feeling? I'm pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> like. I'm here with Oliver Sykes, who uh, I've known for probably four years. Something like that, yeah. It's been four years. tedious, whatever it is. It's been hell. Unending. It, Boring. Almost, I always look around when I'm around you to make sure I'm not in the dentist. Yeah, it's that bad. <laughs> it's gotten worse, too. I can't believe that I've waited this long to have you on as a, as a guest. Uh, I finally qualified. Because you got, oh, no, you qualified by the time you were three years old. <laughs> Just... <laughs> I've just been waiting until I can stand to be in the room with you for, for an hour and a half. We laugh about a lot of shit. I have to say you're one of you're one of my favorite people. And Thank you. We've had so many deep conversations late at night on the phone over the last two years, um, and you've shared so much of your life with me. I I hope in this interview we can capture some of some of that. Um, you're how old? 41. And you were raised on the East Coast. Yep. And your father has pretty severe schizophrenia, among other things. Yeah, bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. It's not really clear. Okay. He was diagnosed as schizophrenic at one point, um, but he doesn't have visual hallucinations, so I don't technically know what he is, but he's on a lot of medication for it. And he loses touch with the reality, though. Yeah. Yeah. And and did as a when you were a kid, and it was pretty frightening. Yeah, he um, well, he was a rager. You know, he he was very abusive towards my mother and his wives. He he broke my mother's eardrum when I was two in a fight, and they divorced, and he was committed, and he was in hospital hospital for like six months. He wasn't even sure if he was going to get out, um, but luckily he got on some medication, Prolixin, which kind of saved his bacon. But he was hospitalized a couple of times when I was a kid, and he, he tried to kill himself at one point with with pills. Um, so yeah, it was definitely a traumatic childhood in that sense. You know, my dad and I—he's a very loving person, but you know, he wasn't able to be present a lot of the time. And from what we've talked about, it sounds like you could never really let your guard down around him because he would turn 
in in an yeah. instant and he would go from being you know talk about that well yeah he was unpredictable you know he he on the one like he leaned on me very heavily um in a lot of in a lot of ways because he couldn't take care of himself um he would he was he was physically violent with his wives and verbally abusive and to me as well you know he would he would call me up on the phone at night he'd call me incessantly as a kid in high school and stuff he'd call me like three four times a night i'm trying to do my homework and he's on the phone wanting attention wanting to talk wanting support or money or whatever it is he's not getting and when i when he get his way he would flip out on me and say horrible things like you're you're a rich spoiled prince because my mother had married a wealthy man and you know we were living in a nice house and my dad was in a welfare hotel in new york city and he'd call me you know a rich spoiled prince or a jew uh you know a greedy jew or you're not my son anymore he would say you're not my son anymore i'm disowning you and then he would call back, you know, like an hour later. I'm so sorry, Oliver. I love you so much. I'm, I'm really, I'm really sorry for the things I said to you. I didn't mean any of it. You know, I love you. What was that like? It was confusing. You know, it was, it was horrible. It was, you know, he was, uh, he was, he really loved me deeply. I know he really cared about me, but he was so mixed up that he couldn't help but act out and be verbally abusive. You know, and he just took his pain out on me, and it was very hurtful. And I internalized all that pain, and I, and I felt somehow felt responsible for it, and felt guilty for the, for the fact that he was suffering so much, you know. And I took it upon myself to try and save him, you know. I would like, I'd bring him, I'd bring him clothes, or I'd bring him food, or I'd bring him toiletries or whatever I could find, and I'd go visit him in, in New York City on the weekends. My mom lived in the suburbs, and he lived in the city, and I'd go in on the weekend, and I'd bring him all these things and buy him food and try and save him. You know, and then, and then, but by my drinking sort of, I started drinking when I was 10. My drinking became a weekend thing. So I'd go into the city and I'd see my dad, and then I'd go out and party with all my friends during you know, at night and stuff. And I'd stay at friends' houses. And so I wouldn't really spend a lot of time with him because it was, it was so painful. What do you think when you, when you think back to the little, the little kid that you, that you were? And what he had to put up with. Um, what do I think back as, as, a, as a kid? Yeah, when you look back on the little 10-year-old you. Right. And we haven't even gotten into the stuff with your mom. Right. But just with your dad about you having to be the parent and him being the kid. Yeah. Um, it's It's sort of, it's ironic because it's like here I am, I'm a 41-year-old man now trying to grow up and be an adult and there I was as a 10 year old kid playing the adult thinking I was so grown up and mature and that I could handle all these things I could handle the burden and I really wasn't prepared to do that I had no skills to do that you know I'm not a professional I'm not a mental health professional he wasn't getting the help he needed you know and he, he was on medication he had psychiatrists and stuff but my dad's so smart that he thought he could outsmart all of his doctors you know and he ne never was able to get guidance from a a good psychiatrist or a therapist, you know, so he didn't really take care of himself, you know, and so he's to blame for that. But I took the burden of having to, to to watch out for him. Did your mom ever try to protect you from your dad's outburst? What would she do? She did, yeah. Um, well, first of all, when I was little, my dad would call my mother up, you know, after the divorce. He would call her and start yelling at her. I don't, I don't really know what he said to her. They would argue in French. 
um, so that I wouldn't understand what they were saying. Just, just in case the situation wasn't strange enough to begin with. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, they lived in they lived in France together, so before they had me. Um, so they were trying to argue in French, so I wouldn't understand exactly what they were saying. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, I, I got the just what was going on, and I would lie in my mom's bed while they would fight, and she would just, you know, there were screaming matches, you know, on the phone. She would put the phone off the hook sometimes, so that you know he couldn't call, and I would get upset. I'd, I felt bad for my dad, you know, I, I really felt bad for him, and I wanted to protect both of them, you know, and, and I would, I would sit there in these fights and just horrible. It feels horrible for both of them, and and anyway, but so as I got older, and then my dad was leaning on me more and more. My mother tried to intervene. She would, she would, she would get upset when my dad would call so much. She would sometimes she'd get on the phone and tell him to leave me alone, or she'd say, you know, you got to stop taking all your dad's calls. It's just too much. You know, you can't handle it. And I'd say, it's okay, mom. I can handle it. It's fine. Leave me alone. And I get very protective of my father. And then she actually offered to have me go to a therapist when I was about sixteen. She'd offered a couple of times, but then she took me to a therapist when I was sixteen because she was concerned. She knew that th- this had to be having some effect on me. And I went to the psychi- the therapist and psychiatrist or whatever they were, and I said, "I'm fine, you know." I'm, I'm and I convinced them that I was totally fine. I said, "I don't have any problems. I'm, I'm totally happy." And I thought I was fine. And that was it. I never saw them again. So I mean, what do you, if you, if, I, I was defensive, you know. I yeah. didn't. I didn't want. I didn't want to let somebody in. I didn't want to let my guard down. Yeah. Do you think it was because your guard had just cr- crept up as that kid? that you couldn't even see that it was that it was up mm. you know when you when you went to go talk cuz i mean what kid being around a parent who you never know if they're going to f- say horrible things to you one minute how can you not have to have a guard up how would you how would you numb yourself how would you mm. how would you escape when you were that kid cuz every kid's got to find some kind of escape yeah what well that's when I, I turned to drugs and alcohol when i was 10 yeah I remember my first drunk. I remember being on vacation at Club Med in uh, Guadalupe with my mom and my grandparents, and we're at dinner. And I, no- I noticed they had a, a like a beer machine, and I went to the beer machine. And I filled it up with glass. I filled up the glass with beer, mm-hmm. you know, like like a juice machine, but it had beer in it. And I just started guzzling it, you know. And I got drunk in about five seconds. <laughs> and I just remember the, being the life of the party. Everyone thought I was so cute. You know, and I would I ran around that whole that whole week we were on vacation. I ran around with like fifteen and sixteen year olds, smoking cigarettes and drinking. That was my first experience partying at ten, and then that just escalated. Every basically it became like like I said every weekend in New York City, partying with all my friends, smoking pot. You know, when I'm thirteen years old, um, so so drinking and drugging became my escape and my relief. From the whole thing. Was there an escape or a relief before that? Because you had years with your dad before you started. Right. Would you, was it fantasy? I don't know, fantasy? fantasy, I would say yeah. fantasy. Yeah, I've always been a daydreamer. I, I remember, well, you know, I was insecure. I was also, I was a bedwetter and I was a thumb sucker. And I would, I Keep remember, going, let me get my pants off. <laughs> I remember, <laughs> I remember being in, um... Being in like first grade, you know, sucking my thumb on the on my desk, you know, not, I didn't want anyone to see, you know, and I had this thing where I would like rub my nose and my my lips or whatever. It was a way of soothing, self soothing, yeah. you know. Yeah. So, um, but fantasy and just just always daydreaming, always wanting to be older, wanting to be like an adult. I couldn't wait until I grew up and got out of out of school. I wanted to be. 
I wanted girlfriends. You know, I was, I, I definitely, I think I became a sex and love addict at a pretty young age. I mean, I remember in kindergarten, you know, undressing girls and all throughout elementary school, undressing girls and getting in trouble for it. Um, and fantasizing about, you know, having girlfriends and older women. Um, I remember at camp one summer, I had a camp counselor. Her name was Lainey. And she was like 18 or something like that. And she was just going off to college. And I was about seven years old. And she would like kiss me on the lips every day at camp. You know, she'd give me a little peck on the lips. And one time I went up to kiss her and I put my tongue in her mouth. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she was like, what are you doing? She's like, you can't do that. And I was like, oh, I, th- I wanted a French kiss. You know, I, I'd seen it. How did you even know what, I what French? I don't know. Well, I had seen pornography at the age of like six or seven. How? My mom had a friend who, this couple, this guy, Fred Cohen, I remember. He, he's, he's an old family friend. When I was about six years old, we went to his apartment one time. And my mom and, and, and he and his wife were in the, in the living room. And he set me up with a movie in his in his bedroom. And it was a porno. It was... um. It was a Revenge of the High School Cheerleaders. And I remember sitting on the bed watching the porno. And my mom came in and saw it and was furious. She got really pissed at him. And it was like, you know, we never let him forget it. It was She was really upset about it. Yeah, that's terrible for a, yeah. a, a kid that, that age. How did the movie turn out? Did the girl, did the cheerleaders get their revenge? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I've got to know. <laughs> um, I don't know the plot, to be yes. honest with you, but it was pretty graphic. Yeah, yes. they, the cheerleaders were were um, were filleting. Yeah. So yeah. there was punishment, but it was doled out in semen. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, it was interesting. I, I, that was my first. I saw my first blowjob was was on that. Isn't that porno? Did you find that your because you were saying that you were there was a sexual kind of obsession before that and you know when you were talking about being in kindergarten and getting girls to take their clothes off and stuff I think that's normal for a lot of kids mm. but where I I noticed that I was different and it sounds like you were different was it was an obsession it mm. was like a way to to soothe mm-hmm. and did you ever get the feeling like I'm way more interested in this than than other kids are or did you I was just a band leader you know what I mean like it was, became a kind of a common like I remember we would we'd be in class and we'd get these girls to like lift up their skirts and show us their privates you know and like I would always be the one egging them on you know do it do it do it you know um, and then one time I got caught exposing myself to a girl in class um, and I got yelled at by the teacher but um there were other, um, I remember, I remember, yeah, it was just kind of like, I had this thing about women at a young age, you know, I think probably because my mother and I were so close when I was very young, you know, she, I was her, it was, there may have been some emotional incest, you know, I was her man kind of thing, you know, cause she didn't have a husband or a boyfriend and, um, and there, there were some inappropriate things that happened with her as well with other men when I was younger. But, um, I remember saying to her one time, like I went to, um, my dad took me to church when I was a little kid, and I, t- and I took communion for the first time. My mom said, "How was it?" I said, "It was smooth, like a woman's leg." Like who says that at the age of five years old? You know what I mean? Like obviously, I was thinking about things that other kids wow. don't think about. You know? Wow. What were the? If you're comfortable talking about them, what were the the inappropriate things with your with my mom? With your mom? Yeah. Um. Well, she. 
There were a few things, a uh, few instances. One was when I was about six or seven. I was in the hospital. I had hives. I got on hives. And so I was in the hospital for like a week. And I'm in bed one night, and I'm um, I'm really I'm really scared and alone in this hospital room. And I call my mom for comfort, and a man answers the phone. And I got really upset and really jealous. You know, what's he doing and you know answering the phone? And she had come to the hospital and comfort me that night and everything. And then there was another situation where, um, with the same man, where they were, we went to his country house in Connecticut one weekend, and they were basically having sex in the room with the door open, and I was sleeping in like this little fold-out couch out in the living room, and then they invited me to come into the bed with them, and they were naked, and they invited me to come into the bed with them and like hang out with them. Wow. And yeah, that was weird. That's, that's fucked up. That's, yeah. that's more, way more than weird. That's fucked up. Yeah. How old were you? I was probably seven. Wow. Wow. And then the, I think I told you this story about Pele, too, the um, the famous Pele <laughs> No, story. I forgot about the, the, yeah. the, the story about Pele, <laughs> <laughs> Oliver. Refresh my memory. <laughs> no, I want the listeners to, to hear this. Right, yeah, the Pele story. Um, all right, well, so they're, um, like around the age of eight or nine, before she met my stepfather, and there was another inappropriate episode of my stepfather as well. But you um, want to share what that one was before? Before that, yeah. yeah. Well, when I was, um, yeah, when she met my, when she first met my stepdad, they're like second or third date. They're in the living room making out, and we're in my mom's apartment. And I hear them in my bedroom, and I run out into the living room and I curse them out. You fucking asshole! Get your fucking hands off my mother, you cocksucker! You know every <laughs> curse you could imagine at the age of you know ten. So, you know, he, he comforted me afterwards. She comforted me, calmed me down, whatever. And then, but then like a, a couple of weeks later, there, he told me he loved my mother and he would never do anything to hurt us. Then they asked me for permission for him to sleep over one night. So he slept over and I heard them having sex in the next room the whole night. And I remember screaming out to my mom, mommy, mommy, are you okay? Are you okay? You know, like, did you know that it was sex? I knew it was sex and I was jealous deep down. I was hurt and jealous, but I acted like because I, he was, I was getting her attention attention yeah and yeah and well also just also having sex with my mom i mean i I must have felt some sort of possessiveness over her you know Mm -hmm. um but i heard them having sex and i screamed out are you okay are you like thinking you know maybe like he was hurting her or something you know i heard all this moaning going on so that must have been pretty traumatic yeah yeah i've I've heard many people share about that about hearing a parent having sex and it's especially if they don't know if their parents being hurt yeah, or not. Right, That's, right. I don't understand why parents would be loud enough that their kids could hear it. How how do they think that that's okay on any level? Yeah. I, I, I just, um, I guess I'm glad my parents were frigid towards each other. <laughs> I didn't realize I was lucky. <laughs> uh, so to tell the, 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 Pele, the, the Pele story. So, yeah, okay, again, I don't know I mean, exactly it's not dramatic age. or anything, but right. I just, it's just It's, so it's an interesting story. It's just yeah. bizarre. So my mother had a friend from Brazil, Regina Dantes, I remember was her name, and she was friendly with Pele. So we get invited to go out to the Hamptons one weekend in New York to stay at Pele's house. And, and maybe we should not be using everybody's last name. Okay. Just for, you yeah, know. Yeah, for an anonymity's know. sake, yeah. Yeah, I think maybe they're using their first names is all okay. Right. All right. All right. I'm sorry, yeah. That's all right. I'm, I'm, I'm revealing everyone's identity. Yeah. Um, so anyway... So my mom's friend knew Pele. Okay, everyone knows Pele, um, the soccer player. So we go to stay at his house in the, in the Hamptons one weekend, and 
we go out there and it's getting late and my mom's partying with all these Brazilians and they're, they're speaking Portuguese. My mom's really good with languages and she picks up Portuguese right away. And, uh, she says, well, you know, I'm going to go into, uh, Rodrigo's room or whatever his name was, Roberto's room. I'm going to spend the night with Roberto. You know, you go down in the basement and play, and play video games and, and is that okay with you? You know, sure, mom. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Okay. Whatever. Don't have much of a choice in the matter. Giving, putting the responsibility on you. That's so, yeah, that yeah. I, I heard somebody do that to a, a kid one time and say, do you, you know, I, I won't move in with this man if you don't want me to. Yeah. You know, it's like, what are you doing putting that pressure on the kid? But go ahead. No, so that was it. It was just, uh, I just remember being very jealous and very angry and, you know, it was, it was just typical of my mom to do things like that. I think she just sought comfort her own soothing and comfort in the arms of men, you know, and, and I mean, granted, like, you know, she was a 35 year old woman, you know, with needs. I mean, I don't expect her to be celibate, you know, right. I mean, obviously, you know, that's, that's normal. Um, and she did remarry, you know, and had a 10 year relationship with her husband, but you know, some of the things she did were inappropriate and I don't think she ever realized it. I don't think it really occurred to her. And then I did confront her actually years later. I did confront her about it. But upon the suggestion of her boyfriend, I remember talking to her boyfriend about it, this guy Chuck and saying, you know, she did all these things with men and it was really hurtful. And he said, you know, maybe you should talk to her about it. And I called her and I said, I called her on it and I said, look, you know, you did some inappropriate things. And she said, she got furious at me. I said, you, you've been jealous of every guy I've ever been with. You wanted to destroy all those relationships and, you know, fuck you. And, and we got into this big fight and she, she was just really upset about it. So, and that's how you left it. That's how we left it. We never really, we never talked about it again. You yeah. feel like it's unresolved? Yeah, it is. Well, it's unresolved in me. I mean, she's moved on. I don't think she gives a shit. But like for me, what does that feel like? Feeling like your mom doesn't give a shit about exposing you to all of that and yeah. abandoning you in a. I mean, she doesn't know. Some adult could have fucked you while you were right. You know, you're milling about at a party with a bunch of drunk people, yeah. you know, three quarters of whom she doesn't even know. Yeah. You know? I, it was just neglect, I think, is what it was. It was neglect, you know. It was, it was, and it was an insensitivity, you know. And I, I think she just didn't know what was appropriate. My mother's never really, never, never, never really known what's appropriate, you know. Like, she would say things to friends of mine, like, later in life, guys out, my friends out here, she made some comment about, like, getting blowjobs on some TV show, real sex or whatever to my friends and they were like whoa that's odd you know and like my mother was the type of woman like you know when i'd have friends over like she'd smoke cigarettes with my friends or gossip with my friends or tell me she thought so-and-so was cute you know and or he's attractive and you know, things like that that are just you know inappropriate yeah and my I, mom my mom would do the same thing it's it's like you were raised by children you were yeah. raised by two children yeah yeah I, I think you're right. I, I mean, I felt like when you described that thing about her getting mad at you, you know, for when you said that, mm. that the times that you felt abandoned, like here you were sharing your pain with her and she just, her narcissism just kicked in and was like, I can't take responsibility for this. Mm -hmm. Which was probably terrifying for her to think about that. Mm -hmm. But... I can't imagine the rage and the sadness that is 
inside you. Mm. You know, I know so we've you've shared some of the sadness with me. There's been a couple nights when we've been on the phone together where where you've cried probably the deepest cry I've ever heard another human being mm. cry. You know, yeah. I think it was like six months ago. Yeah, I remember. And it that, was yeah. it was it was there was like two nights in a row, and yeah. I was really happy for you that you were letting some of that out. Right. It was it was terrifying, but yeah, I mean, I'm glad I did too. It was it was very painful. You want to talk about that? Yeah, we could talk about it. I mean, and in, in hindsight, like it was really I didn't realize how profound it was. You know, it was it was something like I didn't I ended up going to the emergency room at the local hospital that night because I couldn't fall asleep. I was so stressed out about it. And then I kind of then I kind of let it all go afterwards. After I went to the hospital and everything, like you know, that was traumatic. But it was like all right. You know, um, they're just feelings, but like, I don't, I don't, I think I remember you talking to me about it saying like, you know, that I must've felt abandoned by my parents and cause it was around the time that I was, my dad was, was not doing this very well. And I think I was going to visit him and I was really upset yeah. about that. And, and I was really stressed out and, um, you know, you, I think you said that it seemed like I was I was re, maybe re-experiencing the, the abandonment that I felt at a, at a very young age by my dad and my mom, and I think they're both they're both equally. I don't know which is more painful, my dad or my mom. They're, I'm I'm still trying. I'm still grappling with that. I'm trying to process like what really actually happened and what what the damage that was done. Maybe get the cheerleaders on the case and the the three of them go head to head. Yeah, the cheerleaders take revenge. High school on, cheerleaders on, on your on your mom and dad. Yeah, there's got to be a winner. <laughs> uh you know my my sense was when i when we were talking was that i think i remember saying this is good oliver this is good cuz you were you were feeling like you wanted to fight the tears mm -hmm. and i was saying don't i was like embrace the tears this is the pain that you've been trying to not feel your whole life and this is good this means that you're mm -hmm. you're healing because right. all of this stuff is coming up how could there not be anger and rage and sadness and i remember you saying a lot of the sadness was that your dad is going to die someday mm -hmm. and that you can't you can't take care of him mm -hmm. do you remember that do you remember talking yeah. about that talk can you talk about that yeah um I mean, I've come to terms with my, the fact that my dad's going to die. You know, it was like because he's not in good health, right? He's got Parkinson's disease. My dad's got Parkinson's disease. He's in a nursing home in Cleveland, Ohio, and he can't walk. You know, his legs are paralyzed. He's in a wheelchair. And at the time, back in, I visited him back in March, and then I saw him again in August, and he de he declined really badly. You know, they were saying he only had a couple months to live. Where you know he was completely incontinent, he couldn't walk, couldn't take care of himself. He was completely confused. His mind was gone. I mean, he was the Parkinson's was just kicking his ass. And you took him for a walk. Well, that was another experience. Yeah, I took him in the wheelchair, and he fell out of the wheelchair, and you uh, hit a crack, and you dumped him. Yeah, I know. And then he, he he said I was trying to trying to get rid of him, and he told the nurses at the emergency room <laughs> someone was trying to get rid of him. He he's got a great sense of humor, my dad. I mean, that's the one. Oh, that's... he was kidding when he said it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the thing that really bound you to your to your dad was was the the, the sense of humor because yeah. from what you shared with me, um, there was also great stuff with your 
with your dad oh fantastic yeah i i my dad my dad's one of my best buddies you know like he he and i are tight you know like last night he had me he had me in stitches last night he was going on and on about all his sexual exploits and and um just telling me all these stories (laughs) (laughs) completely inappropriate but it was so funny (laughs) yeah you think that's healthy for your dad to be I don't know. telling you about his sexual exploits? I don't know. I think it's funny. I don't know. Yeah. I look at him like I mean I look at it like a like a like a buddy. Yeah. Telling me stuff, you know. I don't know. I I guess I feel kind of obligated to be there for him. He's got no one. He's got my stepmother and he's got me. And it's like But is it up to you to be the person who's there for him? In that sense, I mean, I, I understand, like, in terms of, right. you know, somebody needs to call a nurse or this or whatever. But he's also, he's fucking married, Oliver. Mm-hmm. You, that That's the thing that always blows me away is, and I always say to you, is if that's what his wife is for. Yeah. Well, but she's, she's kind of doing her own thing. She's moved on. I mean, she's got a boyfriend. They're married because basically out of convenience and also right. because she needs the money. She she gets his, his um social security checks. Well then shouldn't she still bear the responsibility of caring for him? And she does. She can... she visits him three right. times a week, you know, she's still there. It's, he's not completely alone. Right. But I mean he doesn't he can't talk to her about guy stuff, you know, he can't she's limited I mean, I don't know, he he, he he still leans on me, but I for whatever reason, I mean I get a kick out of listening to him tell me stuff because it makes me laugh. Yeah. And I'm like, maybe that's just immature, but I appreciate it. Cause I think to myself, he may not be around much longer. I want to enjoy every conversation I have with him. You know, my, my hope for you is that, is that you can get to experience. And I know you've gotten better at setting boundaries mm. with him, but my hope for you is that you can get to experience setting firm boundaries around him mm-hmm. and get to feel the self-love of doing that mm-hmm. and sitting through the anxiety and your brain telling you you're being a bad son, you're throwing him under the bus and getting through that and then still being able to have a relationship with him with boundaries. Because, mm. you know, my take, I'm not, I'm not an expert, I'm not a mental health professional, but my take on it is that you're keeping yourself, yourself stuck in a certain area by not advocating for yourself and, and your boundaries with your mm-hmm. with your with your parents and mm-hmm. you know to talk about what what you've been going through lately without you don't have to get specific about who it is but mm-hmm. the thing that you've been sharing with me which is I'm not sure what you're talking the about. fantasy oh with the girl yeah oh yeah yeah so I have a fantasy about a woman who I know from some support groups and um <laughs> <laughs> When you say no, when you say no, who I've seen, I don't know who you don't know, who I don't know, okay, fine, who you are in love with from afar, and and I use the word love with the biggest air quotes I can find. Okay, yeah, I'm looking for Goodyear to make air quotes that that I can put big around, uh, right? Big enough to express how how little you know this this woman that you're in love with. Okay, well, yeah. So I have a fantasy about a girl that I don't really know. And I find her very attractive physically, 
she's got a way about her. Um, the little I do know is that she's smart. Um, you know, she's well read. I've, I've, I've been to fellowship with her on a few occasions from this fel- this, this support group where we go out afterwards and we all have dinner and stuff and talk. So I've had some conversations with her, you know, um, she knows a little bit about me just from what she's heard me share. And I, that's pretty much all I know from her is what I've heard her share in meetings. Um, I know that she comes from, a uh, an alcoholic family. Um, she, I think there was some incest in there, in her family at some point. So she's had some trauma and, uh, she's, she's emotionally unavailable. You know, she, she, she remains distant from me. You know, every time I, I try to make eye contact with her, she looks away. Whenever I see her after meetings, I try to, you know, want to smile at her, get a, make, get a smile back. No, no, no. There's just none of that, you know. She just avoids me all the time, and she sees me looking at her in meetings, and I see her, and I and I get really uncomfortable because I feel bad that I'm I'm like projecting all this stuff on her, and I'm realizing that after having done some writing about it, that I'm really, it's really about my mother in the sense that my mother was so unavailable to me, and um, you know, I'm. I'm obsessing about her. I'm, I'm trying to control the situation. I'm trying to, it's like, basically she's withholding love from me and it's making me really angry. It's really pissing me off, you know? And I'm, and I'm, I'm like basically like a little kid having a tantrum. I remember when I was a very little kid with my mom, when she would withhold love from me or withhold anything or not give me what I wanted, I would have tantrums in my room where I would kick the walls, you know, and screaming, crying, going on and on for, you know, for an hour. My mom would just leave me there and let me cry until I calmed down. And it's similar to that. It brings up those those emotions. You know, it's that deep where it's like, you know, I'm, I'm realizing. It's also, the, the like I talked about earlier, the fighting between my parents. I think that I project some of the violence and the, 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 um, the aggression. The I'm not sure what the word is um, I'm looking for. But anyway... I'm seeing that in my, I'm projecting that onto my relationship with this girl where I'm fantasizing about us being husband and wife and I'm, I'm bringing in, it's distorted by all the fighting that went on with my parents and it's, it's stirring up those emotions in me, making me very uncomfortable. So it's just, it's very layered, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of stuff going on there. And like you said, I don't know this person and it's an obsession where I feel like we're meant to be together. We're meant to be married and have kids and, it's going to happen in God's plan and it's God's got this great plan for me, you know, and I just, I just need to be patient and let her work her program and I'll work my program and we'll both, when we're both healthy, we'll get together. So that, and that's, that's mm-hmm. how I have it all figured out. Because last night when we talked, mm. share with me what, what you wanted to do. What did I, I don't remember. <laughs> he wanted to ask her out. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And I still do. I still, well, someone said to me, Someone said, you know, you're, you're, um, you're deprived, I'm depriving myself of love and, and, and affection from women. And so I'm doing that with this girl. And what I need to do is to ask her out and just find out once and for all if she likes me or not. And if she does, great. If not, move on. But better to have that happen than to continue to feel this awkwardness that you feel because you want to ask her out, but you're, you're not letting yourself. You know, and my two cents, which you didn't ask for right now, but I'm going to give it to you anyway, and I might have shared it with you last night, was what about her? Because mm. she sounds like she feels awkward around you, the fact that she avoids your eye contact, and there's a certain safety in a support group 
Now, that doesn't mean that you can't ask somebody out who's in your support group, but there's a there's a certain safety mm. that people really, really appreciate in there. And there's a, an organic way, I think, that you can get together with somebody in a support group where you can just feel it building bit by bit by bit. But this relationship, you know, quote unquote relationship with her is there's there's no bits mm. have been laid yet. And it would be like coming out of the blue and could make that that support group, that particular meeting feel um, unsafe for her or awkward mm. for her. Do you think there's any validity to that? opinion i do i do but i what i'm what i'm weighing at is the 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 difference between the awkwardness that i'm feeling now not asking her out and not talking to her and not even get i mean and the awkwardness i would feel if i did ask her and she said no you know i feel like i could that would be better because it would clear the air it would be like okay at least I know now. I don't have to sit here and obsess about it anymore. I know that she's not interested in me. But you might be clearing the air at her expense. Right. As opposed to, you know what I mean? Yeah, and I hear what you're saying. I mean, um, you know, it would be different if she was somebody that you were just bumping into at a coffee shop. Right. You know what I mean? Then I would be like, you don't even have to know her. Just ask her out. But because right. it's at a it's at a support group. Um. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to make her any more uncomfortable than she is. I, I, I guess, I just want to like, I, I guess I just want her to understand me a little bit better. And I feel like, like I said, I feel like she's withholding, and 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 that's really upsetting me. Uh, and I can't, I can't make her love me. I mean, I, I'm not. That's not my plan. Um, but I definitely. I feel some 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 frustration, some some desperation about it. You know, it's, it's it feels like it feels very desperate, and um, I feel like I've hurt, I've been hurting her by being obsessive about her. I feel like it's hurting her as much mm -hmm. as it's hurting me. Do you think there's any validity to the thought that you're just sexualizing your abandonment from your mom because all of the things that you just shared in mm -hmm. your last four or five sentences, mm -hmm. I can't make her love me. Mm -hmm. um, there were two other things that you that, that you said, but it just I couldn't help but think that it's like you're replaying that. It's so much easier to put all of those feelings on her yeah. than it is to look at the pain that your parents that you didn't truly get love mm -hmm. from your parents as a child, and you you do get it, but it's kind of in crumbs, and it comes with huge kinds of baggage attached to it there's just not really a whole lot of unconditional love from from your parents mm -hmm. and there's a pain i think with that because i had to go through it with my mom of realizing that i you know was used and abused or whatever you want to call it mm -hmm. and you know i just get the feeling that with with you until you do that until you face down that fucking monstrous truth mm -hmm. If it's not going to be her, it's going to be another That's woman, gonna be it's going to be a better job, it's going to be something that will distract you from feeling that pain that you just touched into a little bit that night that we were talking about your about your dad. There's mm -hmm. got to be more to it, Oliver. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have experienced one of the shittiest childhoods that I have ever <laughs> heard. Yeah. I mean, it's... 
It's pretty. It's weird. terrible. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I'm. I'm just uh, trying to uh, be an adult. You know, in an adult world, it's it's hard to grow up when you have all that trauma going on. Talk about the ways that you feel stuck as a kid. Um, where you feel like you're still in arrested development, right? In your life. Um. Well, I guess like well one one instance will be one example will be with women in, in the sense that. You know, I'm I'm afraid to approach women. I'm afraid to ask them out on dates because I'm afraid of rejection. I'm terribly afraid of rejection, and uh, you know, I, I um, that's why I have this obsession with this one woman. I feel like okay, she goes to these meetings that I go to, and so she's available, like she's accessible, she's there, she's part of my community. Like I should have access to her where I'm denying myself access to other women. So that's one area. Another area where I'm sort of developmentally retarded is uh is work you know i haven't had a job in a while Uh, my mother supports me financially and um, i'm trying to find work right now actually working in a rehab i'd like to work with other alcoholics i think that would be a really worthwhile thing to do um but yeah i'm not financially self-supporting i haven't been my whole life you know and that's kind of hard to admit what have you done what have I? What jobs have I done? No, for for financial, have you? Oh well, I, I rely on money for my mother. So. And do you feel like that makes it more difficult for you to draw boundaries with her, or to, um, like it takes the option of cutting contact with her? Uh, have there been times when you when when you've thought to yourself, if I didn't need money from this woman, I would not be contacting her or i mean you, there's times yeah there's times when i just had enough of her you know she she can be controlling you know and and you know she does things like you know when i go visit her and she lives in new mexico when i go visit her it's like well you need to shave or you need to put on some nice clothes or you know you put on weight you know why aren't you running or you know um why aren't you dating or you know different things to shame me you know and and uh, those things really irritate the hell out of me. And there's times when I'm like, why do I even talk to my mother? Like, I'll call her for approval for something. Like, I'll, I'll be like, mom, I got a job interview. Oh, great. Yeah, but you don't want to do that, you know, or, uh, mom, you know, um, I'm taking piano lessons. Oh, th- oh well, how much is that going to cost? You know, you, you can't afford that. It's 20 bucks, mom. Well, yeah, that's, I, you shouldn't be doing that. Or, you know, whenever I want to share something, some moment of like joy with her, it's like a lot of times she shoots it down. And it really irritates me. So there's times when I'm like, you know, I wish she would just fucking... Sometimes I'm like, I wish she would just fucking die so I can inherit her money and not have to deal with this shit anymore. Um, so that's that's sometimes where I go with it. But, I mean, again, I don't know. It's, it's, it's tough. How old do you feel when you talk to her on the phone? I feel like I'm about 14. We're going to pick up uh, in a second in the conversation with uh, with Oliver, but I uh, just wanted to give our sponsor some love. Our sponsor this week is Audible. Uh, they have, uh, if you've never checked out an, uh, an Audible uh, audiobook, you are you are missing out. Uh, you know, unlike streaming a rental service with Audible, you own your 
your book. Uh, they have over 150,000 titles to choose from, from fiction, nonfiction, bestsellers, uh, any category that you can think of. And I have one to recommend, a book by Walter Isaacson called The Innovators. It's about the history of the digital revolution from its first inkling in the 1700s until today. And it is fascinating. It's the most entertaining history lesson you will ever get. Anyway, uh, Audible has free apps for iPhones, Android, and Windows phones. Um, the My Library feature lets you access your books uh, anytime, even from your phone. Um they have chapter navigation. They have annotated bookmarks. I could go on and on. It's an awesome, awesome product. Um, so if you want a free 30-day trial, uh, go to audiblepodcast.com slash mental. And that way they'll also know that uh, that we sent you. And maybe they'll, uh, they'll advertise with us again, which, of course, we would love because we love when we have good products on the show. Again, go to audiblepodcast.com slash mental for a free audiobook and trial. Yeah. You know, you use the word irritate. Do you think it hurts? Do you think it's more than irritating? Mm. Or does it just is that as deep as it go goes is irritating? Cuz as I listen to you share the things that she says, I feel hurt. Mm-hmm. I feel hurt for you. And I think the listeners hearing this episode are like, some of them are like clutching their hearts. Like, mm. God, that's so painful. That's so... And not that your parents did anything intentionally cruel. Mm. You know, I'm sure they had terrible childhoods mm-hmm. and weren't taught tools. But some of the things that they do and say are just fucking mean, Oliver. They're mm. just mean. Yeah, but I mean, I don't feel like it's going to do me any good to sit here and point fingers or blame or any of that. I mean, I feel like I have, at some point I have to let go of that stuff. That's that's not what I'm suggesting. What I'm suggesting is is that you feel it. Mm-hmm. Is that you feel it. Mm-hmm. And when you start to go obsess about such and such, try to bring it back to that place of what am I feeling right now? What is the feeling that I'm trying to avoid by... You know, maybe it's sadness. You know, that night that you, you were crying on the phone that we were talking, you were so sad. And I was like, mm-hmm. Oliver, this is awesome mm-hmm. that you are sitting and you're not running from that sadness. Who See, wouldn't run from that sadness and that pain that you have inside you? I think, um, I mean, so much of what I was experiencing that night on the phone with you, I mean, was really, it was it was about the pain and it was like, it was pain on a primal level. I mean, I remember saying to you, this is like a primal scream. This is like wailing you know this is it was really really profound like really painful stuff but it also put me in touch with the the amount of love that i feel for both my parents especially my father like the amount of compassion that i have for him because you know yeah he didn't he did some horrible things but he suffered his whole life you know and he still suffers and that's that's one of the reasons that i really feel compassion for him and that's one of the reasons why i do spend hours with him on the phone and entertain his fantasies and his craziness because I feel so much compassion for him and what he's gone through, you know? Well, what about the idea that they're not mutually exclusive, your compassion for him and your compassion for yourself? Mm. They can both be there at the same time. Uh, Yeah. You don't have to throw him under the bus to feel your, your pain. Sure. I yeah, I mean I don't I I feel like I am in touch with my pain. I don't know. I don't think I'm denying it. I think I just 
I mean, I, I feel like I'm at a point where I have enough self-care that I don't let my father run my life or my mother run my life anymore. You know, that there, I know as I have enough health, healthy, uh, enough healthy boundaries and enough, um, spiritual growth to know myself as a man and to know that I am standing on my own two feet, you know, and that I'm working really hard on myself to, to, to become an adult and to have a healthy relationships with people. And, and, I've seen a lot of growth in the past few years since I've known you. I mean, I've, I've, I've seen grown a, a huge lot. amount. I've seen a yeah. huge amount. Do you feel like I'm pushing you too much? And and no, and, I, I totally understand where you're coming from. I'm okay. just, I'm not, I'm not trying to be defensive. I'm just trying to explain like where I'm coming from with it. You know, I like I, it doesn't. I'm, you know, it, it's hard for me to talk about this stuff, but I do trust you, and I, and I, you know, and I know that it's important that we talk about these things. Like I, I'm glad, I value the fact that we can yeah. talk about these things. You know, and I know that you care. And that matters a lot to me. It's it's hard to watch because you're such a sweet guy, mm-hmm. and I enjoy your company so much mm-hmm. that when I see you being hurt, mm. it and not being compassionate to yourself when your compassion for yourself is the last on the list. Mm. It's hard to watch. It's hard to watch somebody you love not love themselves. And that's how I feel mm-hmm. sometimes when I'm around you mm. is that it's hard to watch you put yourself as the last person on your list mm-hmm. or towards the towards the bottom. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And so I think if I get pushy um, about wanting to try to tell you how i see it mm. um it's just my um that it pains me to mm. to see that sometimes but the um uh, i've seen you become such a different person than mm-hmm. you were than mm. you were two years ago what do you what do you feel um tools you've learned in the last two years that you can break out now when you feel like the shit's starting to hit the fan or you're getting really uncomfortable mm. uh, a few tools well, well one would be definitely prayer which is something that you and i discussed and you really helped me with was to really open up to my higher power and really just tell my higher power how i feel and ask for that support that i want um and that maybe i don't get from my parents and i ask for that from god so I've really developed and cultivated a relationship with my higher power over the past several months where I'm talking to God every day in the morning, get on my knees and pray. And sometimes um, yell. Sometimes yell and, yeah. Just talk. Just, Just talk. talk to yeah. the universe. Yeah. yeah. Also, um, meditation. Someone someone in my support group suggested that I meditate. And um, and I've known about... I See, the thing is, I mean, I've been... I've been sober from drugs and alcohol for almost 20, 20 years in December on December 17th. Mm-hmm. And I've known all this time about the tools that are available, like prayer and meditation. And, a lot, and I think my pride is, has prevented me from using those tools and fear too. I think a lot, I have a lot of fear about, you know, am I being judged by God or, or, or and also with meditation about fear of being alone with my thoughts and alone with myself. I think it's, it's really Your scary. Feelings. My feelings. Yeah. And, um, but I do it more regularly, and um, another really powerful tool for me is writing. I've, I've re- I realize I'm a pretty powerful writer, and when I when I really get things, my thoughts out on paper on the computer, 
I can really, I really grow from that. And I really, it really saves me. It makes me, it helps me connect with myself emotionally. Um, and then also just like hobbies and stuff. Like I started taking piano lessons and that's been therapy. Those are going to be expensive, aren't they? <laughs> um, like I mentioned earlier. Yeah. My mom's against that, but whatever fucker. Um, but, uh, and then, well, therapy, that's been another really powerful tool for me is when therapy is really, I have a great therapist who I've seen, been seeing for seven years. Mm-hmm who's gotten me through a lot of stuff. So The other thing I, I've noticed a difference in you, too, is you're more proactive in, in seeking employment and yeah. working more hours. And you, know, you used to go through this thing where you would think about how you didn't want to go into work. You would try to work yourself up into going to work, and then you wouldn't work that day, and you'd stay home and watch TV and then not be able to enjoy watching TV because you were beating yourself up about right. the fact that you didn't go to work. I know, I know. That was horrible. I remember calling. I'm, I'm, it's so bad about myself. I remember calling and being like, "Paul, you know, I don't know what to do. Like, I'm terrified to go to work, but I, I know I need to do something. But like, I don't have the financial pressure because I'm getting money from my mom, and so you know that's hurt me in a sense. Getting that money has hurt me. I think it's held me back. But, um, but I remember when I wouldn't work. You know, you would say, "Well, why don't you just enjoy the day and." do some self-care and actually you know be thankful and i and i that helped me to you know i would do things like go for a hike or go for a run or take myself to a movie or do something from for myself you know um so you know when i when i i don't know i'm just trying to find like i'm trying to practice good self-care i think that's really vital for someone like someone like myself who's got these issues and struggles with self-esteem and taking care of myself you know to do something proactive, like go work, you know, like that's, that's like a, that's a real achievement for me sometimes, you know? Yeah. And to, to, to practice self care, if you are going to take a day off, you know, at least make something out of it. It's, you know, it always struck me when you would decide not to work, but also not to do self care and just sit and beat yourself up. It's like, it's like, there's something that comforts us. And because I do it too, about, what would the, be the way I could fuck myself the most today? Mm-hmm. What would be the way that because it, it's almost like there's a there's a war in our brain that's like you're a piece of shit. Well, maybe you're not. No, you're a piece of shit. Well, maybe you're not. So if I don't go to work and I don't do anything, I know I'm a piece of shit, and the argument's over. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like a way to silence the back and forth in our brain mm-hmm. if we can if we can. But it's such a it's just such a terrible way to end that argument instead of, you know, doing it some other way. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's just like asking. It's like setting yourself up for failure. You know what I mean? It's it's yeah. uh, it's self sabotage, um, which is something that I've come to realize I do. You know, and then that's a hard thing to admit. You know, um, that I, you know I get in my own way and I shoot myself in the foot. And why do you think we do that? I don't know exactly. I mean, um, I think that sometimes it's it's it feels like it's like sitting in your your piss, you know, as, as a kid in your diapers, like you get or in your shit, you know, you get used to that feeling that that uncomfortable feeling becomes familiar, mm-hmm. and you, you know, it's almost like putting on a, a you know a, a dirty diaper or whatever, <laughs> just just enjoying it. For whatever reason. 
I, I can see sitting in a dirty diaper, but putting on a dirty diaper. <laughs> I gotta, I gotta blow the whistle on that one. And say that's, that's not good on any level. <laughs> sitting in a dirty diaper, at least the first five seconds was warm. <laughs> putting on a dirty diaper, it's cold out of the gate, and it smells. <laughs> I don't know what made me say that. I guess I was just, I think I was fantasizing about wearing dirty diapers. You know, it was like bringing back fond memories or something. Seriously? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Give me some snapshots from from your life childhood, adolescence, adult uh, life. Uh, Anything that you, you think would give the listener a better peek into your soul. It could be something funny, it could be something embarrassing, something horrifying, something painful. Something where a light bulb went off in your mind. A snapshot in my life. Yeah. Interesting. Hmm. Um, something that's hard to share. Something that's hard to share, yeah. Something you want people to know about you. Something you don't want people to know about you. Uh, I guess... I don't know. I think, I think a, a, a telling moment in my life was when I was... Uh, okay, well, basically, I'll backtrack. When I was in college, I was dating this girl, this uh, beautiful girl, Kathy. She was Chinese. And you don't she... want to give me your last name. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm going to protect her. All right. But um, she was a beautiful girl, and we we had a you know we had a, a pretty intense relationship for a couple years in college, and then I went abroad. I went. Um, well, what happened was I cheated on her. Okay, I cheated on her in college. And... Is that what we call going abroad? But, but that's before I went yeah, abroad. Okay. Um, I was, yeah, but anyway, uh, so she found out that I cheated on her and, but she, she didn't break up with me. She stayed with me and I went to, I went away to, uh, to Europe for a semester in Paris and, um, I spent the semester in Paris and she flew me back to school one weekend to visit her while I was away. And, uh, you know, I ended up going out and doing drugs, doing cocaine all night and, came home to her at four o'clock in the morning, you know, wanting to have sex and she had to get up for class, you know, had a test or something the next day. And I just totally bailed on her and was doing drugs and, you know, she paid for me to visit her. So she pretty much decided at that point that she had enough of me. And so when I'm getting ready to come back to school after my semester abroad, she breaks up with me like the week before I come back. So I come back to school and I realized she's met this other guy and she's moved on and it's over. It's really over, you know? And I was so, so heartbroken and so distraught. And I remember just crying, crying. And I remember calling my mom and being like, getting really upset on the phone and saying, you know, I don't know what to do. You know, I love this girl and she's, she left me, you know? And my mom was, and, and, and it hurts. It hurts really bad. And my mom was like, you know, well, that's life, you know? And if you, is, you know, you, you can't feel the joy in life without feeling the pain. That's part of the human experience, you know, and I realized that was, that was really profound for me because it was like, that was the first time, I'd, I'd had my heart broken before, but that was the first time I really sobbed, like the night I sobbed with you on the phone about my dad, it was like that that feeling that loss and that grief mm-hmm. was so palpable, you know, and, 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 and acknowledging that I was a human being and that I'm having this experience, you know, and like honoring it, you know, and like, yeah. so it was a profound moment. It sounds profound too because it sounds like your mom saw you heard you and felt you yeah in that she, moment like she was there to she really did yeah to be your mom in that moment that must have felt incredible yeah even though it was painful 
Yeah, and I realized now, like she, she was really sharing from the heart with me. You know, it was like I was, real, I was witnessing my mom's wisdom and my mom's experience, and we were just two human beings, you know, communicating on a deep level. What would you think about the next time you saw your mom or you talked to your mom, recalling that conversation and telling her how much that meant to you and how mm. close to you, how close to her you felt? And that you long for more moments like that because mm. you felt whatever it was you felt safe or heard or seen or not judged, mm. comforted. Mm. What, what would you think about mm. about that? Is that something that would make sense? Would that be uncomfortable? Would that no? That would be great. Actually, that's nice. That's a nice idea to, to do something like that to really express to her. Because I think all, even the most fucked up relationships, you know, I'm talking about ones that are salvageable, not where they're super, you know, where there's nothing to salvage. I think they all probably have a moment or two where maybe that can be the anchor point to to build on. You know, one of the, the things that I do with my wife that I need to work on is... I'll forget to preface something with something nice and she'll say, you know, if you just told me that you loved me before you said that critical thing, mm-hmm. I could have accepted it. But it's it's just and, – and I'll think back and I'll go, yeah, why, why couldn't I have taken the time to um, recognize what's – we can say almost anything we want to say to somebody if we can just find the right words to do it. And it doesn't have to be – doesn't make it dishonest. I, I think we just got to remind them that what we do like about them. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, the, the last time I, I was, saw my mom was in New Mexico visiting her. She lives in Santa Fe. Mm-hmm. And I was there in September. And we were outside of a... We'd gone for brunch at a restaurant. And we're outside having a cigarette in the parking lot. Of course, my mother uh, you know, gives me cigarettes, which is not good. But... She's a, she's an addict too, um, and she actually she paid for a tattoo that I got too. She, I was there. I was it was hilarious. I mean, I go I go visit my mom. I come back to L.A. hooked on cigarettes and a tattoo on my arm, like that's the opposite of what's supposed to happen when you go visit your mom. But we were having a smoke in the parking lot, and I just said to her, I said, you know, I just want to thank you for for your support, you know, for what you've done for me because you know she like I said she f- supports me financially. And she's enabled me to stay in L.A. and continue pursuing my dreams as an actor and, and a filmmaker. And, you know, she's she has made that possible. Aside, you know, I think aside from the terrible things she's done, she's also shown me that she really does love me and wants to support me. And I just let her know that. I just said, I want to say thank you. You know, I really appreciate it. And she... I don't know if it meant anything to her or not. I think I hope it did. I mean, I, I don't really always know with my mom. I feel like we kind of speak two different languages sometimes. I kind of feel like... I don't always know. Like, sounds, like her, sounds like her moods kind of really vary too. Yeah, and she's just she's very pushy and she's very controlling and stressed out all the time and in a hurry. You know, I I, I was at a I was at she a, sounds wonderful. No, she is. Though. <laughs> no, I'm she, kidding. No, I know. No, I mean she's look. She she's got her own issues, and I heard someone say at a meeting today, like you know. One of the signs of a civil, civilized man is not not being in a hurry. You know that's that's kind of an indication of 
civil being civilized is not being in a hurry. And I think about my mom and I'm like, she's always in a fucking hurry. I don't know what the fuck. Why doesn't she just slow down and like relax? I wish she could relax, you know, and then that I feel bad for her too. That's another, another indication like where I feel bad for my mom. I feel bad for my dad. I, I don't understand like why they have to be so hard on themselves and have to suffer so much. And I want to ease their suffering. It's, it sounds like they're driven by, they're both driven by fear. Yeah. I mean, I think we all are. Yeah. I heard somebody say one time that the two things that, that drive us, fear and love. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I I would agree with that, yeah. Anything else you want to, any other snapshots you want to share that? I had a nervous breakdown when I was about 25 where I was hospitalized and diagnosed as bipolar. And that was probably the worst experience of my life, but another huge turning point, you know, and... um you know, it was, that was very traumatic, but, you know, I, I pulled through and, and with a lot of support, I've gotten to where I'm at now, where I'm, I'm a lot healthier than I was, you know, uh, 10 years ago. What, what do you remember about the hospitalization and uh, what do you remember about leading up to it? What 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 happened? Was it voluntary or involuntary? Uh, it was voluntary. Yeah. Yeah. What what led up to it? Um. Well, I. It's complicated. I mean, I, I don't really, you know, I don't know all the reasons for it. I mean, some of it was just... What were you feeling? What were you thinking? I mean, you can just take it from an hour before you got... Right. Before right. you went in, what were you yeah. thinking or feeling? Well, I was... Uh, or doing? I, well, I'd been I'd been at a meeting, and I had spoken at a meeting, and uh, it was like a young people's meeting in Hollywood, and uh, I remember talking, being really honest about my... Trying to be really honest about my experience, strength, and hope. And um, very vulnerable. And there were people sitting there laughing at me in the back, you know. And I kept looking over at them, looking over at them. You know, what, what the hell? Are they, what are they thinking? What are they doing? You know, like getting really paranoid. You know, and I and I felt there was there, there were some very aggressive people in that group. There were some really aggressive uh, Hollywood kids that I didn't trust. You know, and they made me really uncomfortable. You know, and I shared from the heart. And then I left that meeting, and I went home. And as soon as I walked into my apartment, I thought, holy shit. Someone wants to kill me. These people are going to try and kill me, you know. And I, I went into my bathroom. I locked the door and I got on the bathroom floor and I was terrified for my life, you know. And then I called my dad and I said, Dad, I'm worried people are going to kill me. And he said, Oliver, go to the hospital right now. Go to the emergency room. Because he he'd experienced his own thing, you know. And uh, I went to the emergency room and, uh, you know, and I just remember my dad calling the emergency room. And they said, you know, you have a call from your dad. And uh, I took that call in the emergency room, you know, and I was like so grateful that my dad was there for me. And it was like that. This is this is probably why we're so close is because when I went through my shit with my mental illness stuff, like he was there for me more unlike anyone else because he knew what it was like to lose your mind, you know, and he was there for me like every step of the way. So for that, I'm really grateful. It's beautiful. Yeah. It must have felt really nice too, like that moment that you had with your mom. Where it's yeah. like they both showed up and you were able to be the kid. Yeah. It must have felt really soothing, even though both of them were, you were in pain and feeling fucked up. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I, you know, yeah, I felt seen. I felt heard, you know. It's funny. So, so many parents think that, you know, they got to earn a shitload of money and get their kids into the right school system and all that stuff is certainly important, but just listening to your kid 
just being quiet and making eye contact with them or just holding their hand or just not judging them, you know, letting them make a mistake that day and saying, hey, you know, maybe we'll try to do better next time or it's, yeah. Or, you know, I know you're hurting. I'm, I'm here for you. It's, I think it's easy for me to say because I don't have kids, but, um, just to be present for your kids. Just to be present for your kids. Yeah. Let them know that you care. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've always known intellectually that my parents care about me, but I haven't always felt it, you know? I think you just described 95% of the population, how they feel about their parents. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, I won't, you want loves? Yeah. I'll just, I'll do one, like, short ones. Okay. Um, all right, well, I love, I love hugging and kissing. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on, let me, let me go contact the news stations, because that's a first. And that's so unique. <laughs> Uh, I hope your next one is that you love kittens. <laughs> I love food. I said, yeah, I'll tell you what my six loves were. I love attention. I love laughing. I love hugging and kissing. I love food. <laughs> <laughs> I love food. I love movies. And I love friendship. <laughs> with this i love you okay i love hanging out with you i love laughing with you you make my face hurt sometimes we laugh so much right i love wednesday nights going and sitting at the the mexican restaurant and you get your crunchy tacos and i get my enchiladas although now i'm getting the crunchy tacos because they're so good Mm. and laughing with you and going back and forth between laughing and opening up about serious stuff that's going on in our lives and that to me is the the hallmark of a of a friendship and i i love that about you and that i love that i get to experience that well the feelings mutual thanks buddy thanks man thanks for asking me many many thanks to uh to oliver um before I take it out with some emails that I got, I wanted to remind you guys about the uh, aforementioned ways of uh, supporting the show. I told you about the Amazon search box on our website. You can also support us by making a uh, one-time PayPal donation or um, becoming a recurring monthly donor, which is huge uh, for keeping this, the podcast going. Um I really, really appreciate those of you that uh, support it in any way you can. You can also support us um, non-financially by going to iTunes and writing something nice, giving us a good rating. Um, that helps boost the uh, the visibility of the show. And you can support us um, uh, by spreading the word through social media. That that really helps. So um, every little bit, every little bit uh, helps. All right, let's see. Which one do I want to read first? This one. I'm going to read this first one. It is from um, a guy who calls himself Nick. And uh, he's a vet, a uh, war vet. 
and he wrote to me, it's kind of a back and forth, and uh, he writes, uh, holy shit, I just listened to episode 200 and I finally don't feel alone. Uh, although still misunderstood, Clint Malarchuk's experiences and thoughts and illness sound exactly like me. Granted, I didn't shoot myself in the head or have my throat slashed by an errant hockey skate. But having grown up in a dysfunctional home, serious brain injuries, and being deployed with the army as an airborne infantryman, my thought processes have all followed the same path as Clint's. I've been lucky enough to not turn to self-medication, and I'm trying to seek help, but having heard Clint's story scares the hell out of me because I can see in him what I can become if I don't handle my shit. I've hurt my wife and two-year-old son emotionally and physically because of my illness, but I cannot find the right help. The VA is just shy of fucking useless, and no other doctor I've seen can figure out what the hell's wrong with me. I need some fucking help, and finally hearing Clint's story shows me that I'm not alone and that there is help somewhere if I keep trying. I just hope it doesn't take me shooting myself in the head to get it. And so I wrote him back, and I said, uh, Nick, thanks so much for your, your email. I'm so glad Clint's episode struck a chord with you and that you realize you're not alone in what you're feeling and where you've been. And I'm so sorry that the situation with the VA is frustrating to you. It's one of the things that people who don't have mental issues don't realize is that when we do finally ask for help and it's half-assed or incompetent, it makes us even more hopeless. So don't give up. And then I asked to hear more about uh, about his story. And so... Um, a little while later, he got back to me and he wrote, Paul, I'm sorry I haven't gotten back to you. Things have been rough. So you wanted to know more of my story. And I grew up with my mom who worked to support the whole family, so wasn't around very much. And when she was, she was taking care of housework despite having an unemployed live-in boyfriend. He didn't do anything to help out except maybe the occasional minor repair, and even that was half-assed. He did, however, emotionally and physically abuse my brother and I. Oh, so he did pitch in. So we learned very quickly to rarely be seen and never heard. My biological father wasn't in the picture because he's serving a very long sentence in prison for kidnapping and chaining up a young woman in his basement and tormenting and sexually abusing her. I once thought about reconnecting, but have given that up since finding out that he refused to acknowledge my brother and I as his kids and finding out that all his appeals that he's filled have been on grounds of mishandling evidence or mistrial. He's never tried to show remorse for anything he's done. I'm pretty sure he's a sociopath. I managed to go to college and then join the army to escape my life, I guess hoping that by removing myself from the situation of my whole past through education and removing myself from the situation uh, of my whole past through education and the army gave me peace. Um, I might have been a typo in there, I'm not sure. Uh, strange, I know. I served pl- five plus years as airborne infantry deployed, deploying to Iraq in the middle of the surge. I remember once you mentioned getting getting giddy during turbulence on an airplane, hoping it would go down. I hoped and prayed every time I jumped out of the airplanes that my parachute wouldn't open. And I tried to find the IEDs while in Iraq, even going straight up to them and kicking them to see if they were live. I wished so bad that I wouldn't live to see the next day. But for whatever reason, I'm still here. Now I'm married and have a son, and I love them both more than I ever knew was possible. But because of my past, I've become what I hated and feared as a child. I've emotionally abused my wife, 
flirting with physical abuse at times. Our arguments and fights have no doubt scarred my son, and I face divorce if I lose control again. I don't blame my wife at all. She's looking out for her, for her and our son's best interests. But I've gone to more than a handful of psychiatrists and probably the same amount of psychologists inside and outside of the VA system to be diagnosed with everything from bipolar to depression to PTSD, TBI, and damn near everything in between. The VA tight walks the line of uselessness and despite being diagnosed with PTSD by their own damn psychiatrist, they have canceled and rescheduled the start of my PTSD therapy yet again. I'm looking at damn near two years of this comical dance with them. I finally found a psychiatrist who seems to have landed me the right meds to stop and control my most dangerous fault, rage. But of course, I have to pay for decent head doctors out of my own damn pocket because the healthcare system seems to view them differently from other doctors so most insurance doesn't cover them. I'm also going to admit myself to an inpatient program at the beginning of the year hoping for more comprehensive evaluation and treatment again paid out of my pocket. This is tens of thousands of dollars I've had to pay myself when I am supposed I've had to pay myself when I am supposed to be getting free and complete health care from the VA. I've come to a point in my life where all I want is my family, a healthy and happy family, and to stop the cycle of my past. It's so damn hard to be a good father and husband when the only role models you've had were, at worst, a sociopath and, at best, emotionally and physically abusive. I don't get any help from the government that I fought and risked my damn life for, never mind that there was also the selfish hope that I would die. Not to mention, who the fuck am I going to talk about this with? The reactions I get from any head doc when I start to tell them my story is the poorly veiled expression of, damn, he's fucked up. And any of my friends from the military don't want to hear about my feelings and shit concerning war because it's weak to show that it affects you. And none of my friends outside of the army can relate to that. And I'd wager that none of my friends from either have a biological dad who's sincerely fucked up. So needless to say, say I feel very alone in a dark world. And um, I put, I just connected um, Nick to Lee Thorne, who some of you remember from uh, two years back. He's the father of podcaster Jesse Thorne, and Lee is a uh, Vietnam vet who uh, does a lot of work, um, not only on himself, but also in trying to help other vets. And so uh, hopefully they'll, they'll be able to connect, but man, I... I'm sorry if sometimes the stuff I read on here is uh, so dark and depressing, but, you know, there is an epidemic in our country of avoiding sadness at all costs, and shit just gets worse, and I um, I feel like we need to, we need to, we need to talk about this stuff. We need to talk about it, but I'm sending you some love, Nick. And thank you. I'm always so touched when when a vet reaches out um, to me because uh, I don't know. I guess I just I always feel like um, like what they go through is so beyond the scope of anything I've ever experienced that you know I almost feel this is kind of fucked up, but I almost feel like like a little kid. Um, having a professional hockey player walk up to them. You know what I mean? Like like my issues are minor league and their issues are 
our major league, which I, I know is probably not the case, but that's just that's just how I feel. And I think also, too, because I've, I can get a little embrace my feminine side on this podcast and so I think I'm always a little a little surprised when when um, you know some macho shoulder soldier is uh, is listening to the show uh, this is an email that I literally got a half hour ago and um, I'm gonna change her name and the country that she lives in because I haven't um, I haven't had a chance to uh, ask her what what name she would she would like me to use so i'm not going to use her her real name but uh we'll, we'll just use her initial and it's uh it's r and she writes um right now i'm 16 years old i'm alone in my small bedroom that is filled with rotting food and half of the kitchen's cutlery set it's quarter to eight and no one is home i've never received any professional help and what i'm about to tell you I have, for what I'm about to tell you, I've wondered if my life would seem less bleak and dull if I did, but I will explain to you now why this is. I'm Asian, specifically I'm South Korean. Uh, she doesn't live in South Korea though. This is important uh, because even though my physical appearance is of Asian ethnicity, there have been many, many moments in my life where I believed being white was better. I've encountered many moments where racism was thrown at me. Uh, at the time, I never knew. I just thought I was hated for being me. Uh, there's so much to say. There's so much to say, I don't know where to start. I guess I'll make a list where most of my problems lie. One, I was exposed to graphic pornography by my older brother from the ripe age of four. I believe I was sexually abused as well, but I can't confirm. Today, I confuse kindness with attraction, and I lost my virginity to strangers on, uh, I always forget how to pronounce this, o Omegle? O Omegle? <laughs> O-M-E-G-L-E. Um... It, it's a video chat thing. Uh, I think it's it's kind of like chat roulette. Uh, I lost my virginity to strangers on uh, Omega Lee. I know I'm not pronouncing that right, but I don't know what the pronunciation is. Uh, because I wanted to feel the artificial love through sex. I was 12 at the time. This was the only thing I've ever known. Two, my parents had an abusive relationship together. And today they live in the same house but never speak or look at each other. Uh, are you sure you're not thinking of my parents? <laughs> oh, that's right. My dad's dead. Uh, this has happened for about two years, but they haven't had a divorce uh, because it would cost too much money to live separately and they're afraid of what others would think. Uh, three, I'm aware that I'm destroying my body through self-mutilation and starving myself. I'm aware that I could be diagnosed with anorexia nervosa uh, binge purge subtype. I do not want help. I'm sorry, Paul. I want to explain it all, but the, for the life of me, I can, cannot remember uh, such explicit details. I've thought it over so many times and created such theories and cures that the memories have become dull. I am not as horrified by my past as I have been before, but it's made me awkward and a dysfunctional person in society because I don't know uh, what normal is, so I try to imitate others. I've lost touch with myself and others, and trust is virtually impossible for me to know. I can explain it to you properly and fully if you have an interest in knowing. Otherwise, I'd like to leave it off like this. One day, I'd like to be a guest on your podcast. It's a one in a million, but it's not impossible, right? I promise I can be fun. If you give me coffee and caffeine, I'll be a riot of laughter. Um, 
by the way, I uh, I get emails uh, sometimes from uh, kids your age that offer themselves to be guests on the on the show. And as much as I would love to record you, um, I I won't record anybody who's under eighteen unless I have explicit permission from their from their parents. Um, anyway. Uh, uh, continuing, uh, I don't know what I'm trying to achieve from this. I guess a sense of touch. I don't know. Have a great day, man. You deserve it. Fuck, what am I doing? This is idiotic. Sorry. I want to say so much and express so much and be angry, but I can't get fucking angry anymore. What the fuck is this? I honestly lost touch in myself, and I leave things half-assed because I don't want to disappoint anyone. If my hardest is only so little and I'm such a fucking hypocrite, and I'm so annoying, and I leech off any attention I get because I haven't felt properly acknowledged from when I lost everything. Oh, God, what am I even saying? You won't even read this. Ha, ha, ha. Jesus fucking Christ. I'm a mess. I'm a mess. I literally cannot form words to explain how I feel when maybe three years ago I could have perfectly formed words to tell you exactly how I... uh, So sorry. I'll stop here. I'm rambling. And I wrote her back and said, I'm so sorry you're experiencing such trauma and feel so much pain and hopelessness. You are most definitely not alone. I just literally finished uh, emailing another 16-year-old whose self-loathing is every bit as unfounded as yours. And I'm going to read her email after this one. Most of us are a mess. I felt like a mess five or six times today. I couldn't trust my mind. I felt a sadness and emptiness I couldn't explain. I was second-guessing everything in my life. But I've been around long enough to know it's probably just my brain doing what it does, fucking with me in some perverse attempt to keep me alert and safe while ironically making me spaced out and anxious. None of these activities you are engaging in are who you are. They are how you are trying to cope in the wake of abandonment and abuse. Inside you is a sensitive little girl that was forced to hide because it wasn't safe in your house and she's afraid to come out and be vulnerable. Healing from abuse takes time. There are days when I just want to be held by a mom and cry. Or I want to live in bed for the rest of my life. But bit by bit I'm getting better because I started to open up about the abuse I experienced and you can too. You can heal. I know trust is hard when your trust has been shit on time and time again. And as ironic as it sounds, trust me. I have no reason to lie to you. I have video games to play. I have documentaries about serial killers to watch. I have walls to stare at. I have feelings to stuff. I am a busy guy. Remembering explicit details of your abuse is not necessary to begin healing. Finding someone safe to talk to like a therapist and talking about what you're feeling is where to start. They'll help you find ways to substitute healthy behaviors for unhealthy behaviors. The bad news is it takes a concerted effort, time, and patience. But the good news is you'll slowly begin to feel less alone the longer you do it. Eventually, you'll feel self-love and the unhealthy behaviors won't have the same compulsive pull. And there will be bad days mixed in, but you'll bounce back. Healing doesn't mean we don't fall down anymore. It just means we have a desire and the tools to get back up. And I hope you change your mind about wanting help. Nobody is ever excited about getting help. 
At some point, though, it just becomes less scary than staying in pain. I think we're all sending you some love. And then this last one I wanted to read is, um, this was from, I think you remember we read her, well, let me just read her email. Um, Hi, Paul. First of all, congratulations on that article in The Atlantic. Uh, Oh, yeah, I want to send some major thanks to Amanda Bloom, who wrote a really nice article uh, in uh, The Atlantic. It came out uh, today. Um, And um, I've just gotten such nice support from people who, uh, who read it. And Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, she writes, I was so surprised to see it. I hope it brings new listeners to the podcast. This is kind of dumb, but I really need some advice. You've read some of my surveys on the show before. Uh, she calls herself Fuckface. And uh, she writes, I don't know if you can go back and reread those uh, or if you remember anything from my surveys, but if you do, I guess you might uh, have a little backstory. But, and then she puts in caps, but please don't if it's too much trouble. Uh, to recap, I'm a 16-year-old, recently out lesbian who is struggling to become more masculine so that my outside can look the same as I feel on the inside, which is surprisingly hard when you have no money. I have very few friends and even fewer close friends. I'm not even really sure if I have a friend that most people would count as close. I'm not even really sure what normal is. I've never been in a relationship. I've never kissed anyone. I've never even held hands romantically with someone. I feel so ashamed, embarrassed, and alone. I'm in my school's GSA, but the only lesbians I know are two friends of mine that live in New York City. There are a few bisexual and pansexual girls that I know, but I don't think there's a chance of me getting with them. My closest friend is this gorgeous bi girl, but I know she can't possibly feel the same way. She even complained to me about how she wants to date a chick, but there aren't any options. I know getting people to like you is all about confidence, and I've been getting exponentially more confident, but it's barely made a difference. Uh, I have a few more distant friends, and I actually feel like I'm more distant from my friends in general. I'm happier overall, but when I suddenly realize what a loser I am, it makes me feel really shitty. Sometimes I feel paralyzed with the fear that I will never be able to kiss another human being. I worry about what happens if this goes on forever, when I'm 20, 30, 40, And I've still never been in a relationship, still never kissed a person, let alone lost my virginity. I feel if I'm 30 and still have never had my first kiss, I'll have nowhere else to turn but suicide. I've never once genuinely felt suicidal, but I can imagine being so in that situation. I mean, you can't redo life, and by then I'll have wasted all of it anyway. Anybody who is 30 and is over right now is laughing and offended at the same time. Uh, I feel like something is wrong with me. I just want one person to like me a lot. I just wish I could hold someone. What should I do? Fuck face. And uh, I wrote, uh, thank you so much for your kind words and opening up. And what you wrote isn't dumb. It's fucking beautiful. Uh, And of course, I remember your survey a couple of episodes back. It really touched me. Uh, You sound like such a sweet and empathetic kid. And who can forget the nickname fuckface? Hey guys, remember fuckface? No, I meet so many people every day who call themselves fuckface. They just blur together. This year's most popular baby names, Baker, Sophie, and fuckface. I think what you're experiencing is the pain of being a unique and sensitive person coupled with a brain that likes to ruminate and extrapolate. Also, 
You know who experiences sexual frustration and loneliness? The entire fucking planet. Sure, some get some reprieves now and then, but mostly behind every closed door is tears or jerking off or both, which on the show we like to call master sobbing. Uh, they really should remind you uh, of this when you ish- when they issue you uh, driver's licenses. I'm not going to try to minimize how hard it must uh, be to be LGBT in our society, but I do know that if you keep opening up, seeking help and support, and giving help and support, you'll soon find yourself connecting with people who love you exactly as you are, and both they and you will embrace what is unique about you. You'll be grateful for the challenges you faced because they will teach you lessons that will help you in other areas of your life. And those things, those spiritual things, will radiate a loving, confident vibe that will attract people. None of this is to say you're not radiating that already, but it sounds like you're really beating yourself up a lot and projecting into the future. You're already being forced to develop tools to cope that most 40-year-olds don't have, especially cisgender straight white guys. You feel powerless, insecure, and afraid. You're convinced your future is doomed. You're being tested as an intensely as someone battling addiction. You're getting the experience of bottoming out on crack without having to take a single hit. You are getting crackhead self-loathing without having to spend a dime. Fuckface, you are saving money. But in all seriousness, you're actually ahead of the game even though you can't feel it. You're feeling the pains of growing into your skin. Take care of your spirit and the rest will fall into place. And a good place to start might be not calling yourself fuckface. Although, it has a certain ring to it, and it's pretty endearing. Thank you so much for your support and your emails and your letters. Letters? I've never received... Actually, I have received a, a couple of, uh, of snail mail letters. So I, I stand corrected. Your emails and letters. And... um I hope if you've uh, listened this far into the episode, you uh, you got something out of it. And um, I just hope anybody out there that's feeling stuck, you, tomorrow is the day or tonight is the day you pick up the phone and you, and you ask for help. Um, a good source is uh, helpguide.org. Check that out. They got a huge, huge uh, listing of resources. Um, but most of all, just remember you're not alone. You're not alone in any of this. And there's help if you're willing to get out of your comfort zone. And um, thanks so much for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.